Welcome to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here uh, with my co-host, Cliff Staten. Good morning, Cliff. Morning, Jean. How are you today? Very well, thank you. We have with us this morning uh, two guests, Dr. Johnny Alsi from the Department of Economics at Indiana University Southeast, and Mr. Ken Stammerman, who is a retired Foreign Service officer who spent many, many years um, in the Middle East and working on economics and trade issues. Good morning, Ken and Johnny. Good morning to you. Good morning to you, indeed. Happy to be here. We appreciate your being with us. Um, This is a special episode of the International Power Hour. This is a a dual production with the Indiana University Southeast Global Civic Literacy Initiative, which is a program that we are undertaking in collaboration with the American Democracy Project and the Council on Foreign Relations. So we are going to be talking about the basics and the benefits this morning of global trade. Um, As I was getting dressed this morning, I took a look at where my clothing was from. Um, I am wearing things right now from China, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Haiti, Thailand, and India. My pajamas were from uh, China and Nicaragua. I'm not sure where my coffee was from, but I know it wasn't domestically made. Um, (laughs) And the grocery store where I bought it is is, uh, based in Germany. (laughs) So uh, already this morning, I've had a lot of international experiences that have touched my... um, daily life. And, and obviously, that sort of thing touches the lives of everyone. So let's just start out with, um, you know, why is it a good thing for me to be able to be wearing uh, clothes from all over the world and drinking my coffee and eating my breakfast from all over the world and also talking to you on a computer that is from somewhere else as well? <laughs> <laughs> Everything in my life basically is from elsewhere. (laughs) What are are the benefits of of that? And do you want to join or? uh, You guys can just, whoever wants to, whoever wants to jump in on that. Johnny, go ahead and start. Why don't you? Let let me give you a couple of premises here in terms of why it's more than a good thing. It's also why it is inevitable. It is bound to happen. Uh, First and foremost, businesses are expected to maximize profit. So, which means uh, investors and businesses demand the company do well and reward them for the investment they make in the business. At the same time, consumers on the contrary want goods that they can consume at the least price possible for a given quality of good. So the pressure comes on businesses from both ends. Uh, investors demanding higher return or greater profits, and consumers wanting better quality product for cheaper price than competitors. So therefore, businesses are then forced to look for places where they could channel the production in order to lower costs, therefore fulfill the consumer needs, which benefits them. At the same time, reward the investors in order uh, with the greater levels of profit, which is expected of them. From that perspective, then they're scouting the entire world to see where if this product is made, that I could get it at a fraction of a cost than what it takes me to make here at home. Are there places that are highly productive and specialized enough that they can produce the commodity that they are manufacturing at home for a fraction of what they could produce? If it happens so, that's a win-win, not only for consumer, not only for businesses, not only for use of resources, but also the country that uh, gets this opportunity, which could be mired in poverty. For them, it's a way to break out of that, create employment and uh, reward the workers and resources as a result. And that's my perspective. Ken could kind of chime in if he has additional ones. Oh, no, I, that's a the very good summary, especially since it puts the businessman in the center of the decision-making. Often we think of um, you know, David Ricardo originally figured out why international trade happens and why it's to the benefit of all concerned. He talked more in terms of countries and countries, but it's really the businessmen, especially in this era of globalization, who have managed to bring the 
highest quality, cheapest price consumer goods to the consumer uh, in countries like the United States and to find productive factors in countries that, you know, 100 years ago, we would never have thought of as supplying our clothing. So I'd add that in. I think I think uh, perhaps a question <clears throat> someone may ask you, you talked a little bit about the costs of doing business. And quite often people focus immediately on labor costs, but there are other costs as well. Uh, what are some of those? Typically in a business, especially uh, as it pertains to overseas business, if you're thinking about global business, there are additional costs in addition to the labor cost alone. Typically, we think that when you think of a business operation, we think of the resource cost, primarily capital, land, and labor, which includes the raw materials and other types of cost as well. However, what people forget is a significant cost, other costs of businesses are transportation costs, inventory costs, logistical costs, wastage costs, obsoleteness costs, and the risk of uh, um, protecting the uh, goods that you import from insurance costs. So when you add up all of those costs, then it is not just the uh, labor component alone. There's more to it than labor. But yet, if a product is highly dependent on labor, let's say 60 to 70% of the cost is primarily labor. And if labor in a domestic economy is five times more expensive, then that's a significant reduction if a business can locate to places where it could be produced at one-fifth of the cost of what it takes to produce by using labor at home. So that's where the savings comes for businesses. But it also adds other costs, which is which I mentioned earlier, the indirect costs of doing business, all the insurance and other things that they have to tag on. Sometimes there is also <laughs> added costs imposed by government regulations in the form of tariffs and quotas and other types of, of artificial barriers, fees and customs charges. And that also have to be uh, checked into because then you make your decision based on, is it worth it now? After I add up all this cost, is it really the savings that I thought I'm going to get initially? So that's what businessmen uh, has to become savvy about, evaluate the benefits or cost of doing it, and then undertake the operation. So businessmen and women are constantly doing a calculation then um, of, you know, this is going to cost me this if I produce it overseas. It will cost me this if I produce it domestically. This thing adds into the cost if I produce it overseas. This other thing adds into the cost if I produce domestically. It is a constantly constantly evolving, not just a static thing, but a, a complex and evolving set of calculations that are very, very dynamic. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why, even when you kind of mention products are made in China and Cambodia and Thailand and other places, Nicaragua, that's a reason for it. If the operation, they evaluate, they kind of look at the radar of where, if I make this product, is going to be the least. But guess what? You might make that investment only to find there could be a total regime change or policy change or increase in cost of doing business in the country as a result of uh, political uh, demands or uh, uh, policy change demands. So then what you do is, as a businessman, look for alternate markets where you could kind of make the same product cheaper. So which means you always have to back a plan. It is not just, yeah, here is one country I've chosen the ideal situation would be when you make that kind of huge investment in producing a product, you want a long-term commitment and stay so that you can break even. And then you want to sustain that market. You want to explore the market. You want to take advantage of the market. You want to also have a presence in the market because that market also becomes a potential place where you can sell the products that you're making to ship to the rest of the world. That's the intent with which you go, but it may not pan out. So you have to have plan B, plan C, plan D. So that's what businessmen constantly evaluate. It's a dynamic uh, decision making. It's not static. Once you make it, you don't forget it. You have to have several things in the fire, knowing that one of them will eventually not work, which means you have to go to plan B. 
Let's dive into that a little so, bit more, um, if, if so, we can. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. So there, there are political risks to this, uh, depending upon oh, where your your source is from. Let's say you're getting oil from the Middle East, Ken. I think there are yes. significant. Your decision making is not simply add up X's and O's and get such and such. It's how do I factor in the risk of, let's say, a less than democratic government in terms of what I'm doing in terms of five years, 10 years, and so on? Is that correct? Uh, oh, sure. And so that when, uh, like the countries in the Middle East have to make a decision in the Persian Gulf area, have to make a decision on how much to invest in expanding their oil production uh, because they have to deal with each other uh, within uh, OPEC, which, you know, the whole cartel thing. And so that they have to think about the Kuwaitis, for example, are supposed to be producing only, say, 2.4 million barrels a day. Uh, they could produce probably 4 million barrels a day or five without that much investment. But is it worth it knowing that uh, their friends in the Gulf and their not so friendly neighbors will really be upset with them if they go beyond the 2.4? So there is that issue as well. So we have, um, just for our listeners who may not be familiar, Ken mentioned OPEC, which is a cartel, which is a, a group of countries that basically coordinate how much they will produce um, in order to control uh, supply, which affects price. Um, and so while the Kuwaitis could, as you said, could produce more, um, they're holding back so that, um, you know, prices can um, remain stable, not get too out of control or get too low where they're uh, in a position of having to <laughs> pay people to take care of their oil, which is uncommonly where we are this week. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I hope that translates into gain for consumer. Uh, because we have been paying a steep price for a long time at the pump because of this artificial control of supply when the global demand is rising. But this is uh, in the reverse. Not only demand completely have been decimated, at the same time, there is excess supply of oil. They can't just close the spigot and they don't know where to store them. So therefore, you have a glut in the marketplace, which by market mechanism, is going to suppress price or lower it. And that's exactly what you're saying. I hope it translates in terms of lower price for consumers who have been, uh, anyway, taking advantage for quite some time. But the downside of that is the shale oil producers in the U.S., uh, whose cost of extraction is much, much, much higher, and the quality they produce is inferior. And they are going to pay a steep price because no one wants to take their oil, which is inferior quality, but at the same time, higher cost. And as a result, most of them will file for bankruptcy and they'll be out of business because they're relatively inefficient when it comes to production and because it's more expensive for a shale produ production to take place. And that's where the President Trump has been proposing in recent times similar to the package of stimulus, uh, stimulus money that was set aside for small businesses and those industries that have been adversely impacted by COVID-19, he thinks we have to earmark a separate package for shale producers so that several of those businesses will be, can at least bail out from bankruptcy and keep the jobs, especially 20, 22 million plus people who filed for uh, temporary uh, unemployment uh, compensation, hoping that this would revive and then get back on its feet. But it is going to add more misery in the case of uh, shale oil production. So, so there's a couple things oh, there. Absolutely. Uh, um, first of all, there is the price at the pump, and that's something that you know every consumer can relate to. Everybody's filling their cars. Everybody um, is affected by that. And for you know some folks. Uh, when gas gets really expensive and people who have longer commutes, that can be a that can become a significant portion of your income <clears throat> income expenditure on that. So uh, you know we have seen in the last few years gas prices ranging from over four dollars a gallon to you know under 
a dollar a gallon actually uh, recently, which is kind of mind blowing. But uh, you know, a lot of the time it, it kind of sits in the maybe two dollar range ish. Um, what are, what kinds of things? How how are the prices being affected? Um, what sort of things in the global trade environment are shaping how much we pay at the tank? I mean, we've talked about the glut of oil that's um, that's present at the moment um, and the the controlling of price or efforts to control the price with this cartel. But um, how are you know what people are paying at the gas pump? How are those things being determined? Also, obviously, the um, government policies that Johnny just mentioned. So we've got a few things there, okay. but but in terms of you know filling up the tank, what 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 shapes that? Uh, I'll leave it to Ken. Yeah, uh, one thing that, that uh, I, I always emphasize uh, when analyzing the oil coming out of the Gulf is that. The production of oil uh, follows with a very simple economic concept called a supply curve. If prices are high, then more supply will come on. In in other words, uh, oil production is not only a function of geology, it's also a function of economics. So what happens when we have fairly high oil prices at the pump which relates to the price of crude oil being traded internationally, uh, then more people, more countries, more entrepreneurs, more businessmen uh, start looking for oil in all kinds of strange places, like, like uh, shale. The sea. Johnny just oh, like shale. <laughs> Where, like you're literally with shale oil production, you are literally taking rock, a particular kind of yeah. rock called shale, and squeezing oil out of it versus like drilling into the ground and finding a pool and just letting it flow. Obviously, if you're having to go through an industrial process of squeezing oil out of out of rock, uh, you you know it's going to be a costlier form of production. Um, than if, uh, you know, you can just drill and it spurts out. Um, yes. so but you, you've also, as Ken mentioned, uh, places like the North Sea, the Gulf of Mexico. These are, that, that's really capital intensive. You've got to put a lot of money into these platforms to dig an yes. oil well in thousands of feet of water. So it's got, the price has to be high before you're going to risk that type of capital. That's right. Before we're going to risk that, and notice that the light, latest uh, discussions among the oil-producing countries to try to fix a price was not OPEC, but OPEC plus. So yeah. you're talking about, instead of the old seven, eight countries that were really significant, you had 20. And you had to bring everybody on board, including Mexico, including Russia. And that's a lot harder to do than when you've got seven or eight that really made a difference. So it's, a, it's important, though, the, the political aspect of this, not just economics, not just geology, is that remember that President Trump got involved to try to make this agreement come about. And that's because what is one of the key states to look for in this year's elections is Texas. Texas. So, Texas. And so Texas then, if it could be a member of OPEC, uh, might make a difference. But of course it can't. So it's uh, that's where the, you have the interplay of economics, politics, and in this case, geology. So, so there's I a think lot of factors when you, that go into When you look specifically at oil uh, as Johnny and Ken will point out, it, it, we tend to have boom bust cycles in oil production. You know, everyone gears up and starts spending a lot of money to produce oil when the price is high. Ultimately, you're going to produce too much and you get kind of a bust cycle. And the most expensive producers are going to have to either cut back or go out of business. And that's essentially what's happening now. And that is one aspect of it. Okay, let me let me just is. hold on one second. Um, to, sorry, to be clear, these boom bust cycles that Cliff mentioned, uh, you know, um, co companies jumping in when prices are high to produce more. 
Um, and then, you know, having to exit when prices get too low, if their production costs are too high, that, that very much affects the price at the pump for our average consumer. When prices are high, we're paying more. Um, but then as, as companies come on board to benefit from those high prices, that does pull the price down for us. Um, and that's good, except then again, if prices get too low, <clears throat> that expensive those expensive sites like drilling in deep water or the shale production um, that will um, basically cause certain numbers of producers to leave, reducing supply and then driving prices higher for us. Sure. So there's a lot of up and down. Go ahead. Yeah, the interesting thing is this is not unique to oil. This is with all commodities. And typically the pattern follows the business cycle. When the economies around the world tend to do well and they experience boom that lasts for a long period of time, investment flows get attracted in a significant manner because of optimism, upbeatness, and the belief this is going to continue well into the future. And that's when people start primarily the profitable opportunities increase during that time. And everyone wants to take advantage of it while it's still out there for the grabs. And that's when the investment levels take place. So that increases supply, the number of suppliers, as well as existing suppliers supplying more. But in this case, on top of that, we also saw sudden drop in demand globally. And that's because of the COVID-19 factor. So the entire world has come to a complete shutdown mode, which means people are not driving. Look at what happened to airline industry. Now there are satellite pictures showing the air traffic. Uh, it's almost empty space, so to say, with no lines drawn connecting the airline routes. Similarly, all the ships have been quarantined, right? Major carnival ships and cruise ships and and transportation ships, they've all been quarantined because no one wants any type of international travel or exchange at this moment. So therefore, people have been asked to stay home and only essential workers are asked to show up for work. Therefore, there's a dramatic drop in driving and movement of people. And the combination of that means no one wants oil <laughs> at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think also the yeah. I, I, what's what's been happening illustrates another uh, fairly fundamental economic principle that demand curves slope down to begin with. That is to say, usually if we have a commodity, if the price of the commodity drops, we consume more of it. You know, given whole uh, other normal factors, but in this case. We have what's called a shift in demand. Yes. The entire demand curve moves way over to, if you draw yeah. a graph, would be way over to one side. So it's not only the way demand usually operates. This is an extraordinary situation where the entire demand curve, so to speak, moves uh, to uh, further affect where supply and demand meet. So obviously, um, I mean, no one... Epidemiologists predicted a pandemic. They knew one would be coming. The only question was when. So to say that no one knew this was coming when, is, is yeah. not accurate. But the big when is a question. Um, so in addition to all these other factors, political, ge geological, um, economic, um, obviously, you know, the prices of things as fundamental as what we pay at the pump are, are affected by, you know, sort of out of nowhere, quote unquote, black swan events. Um, and that can, that's tough on, that's tough on business to make, um, you know, to make decisions and, and keep things predictable. Um, I'm looking at the clock and it does look like we are uh, due for a little break. So the International Power Hour will do that and be right back. Welcome back to the International Power Hour, a special edition um, offered jointly with the IU Southeast Global Civic Literacy Initiative sponsored by the American Democracy Project and the Council on Foreign Relations. We are talking this morning with uh, Dr. Johnny Alsi and Mr. Ken Stammerman about global trade. And we've talked about how global trade is beneficial for 
um, businesses as well as consumers. We've talked about the many, many factors that can affect uh, the price of items for people that we uh, that we use on a daily basis, especially looking at gas prices. Um, I wanted to go now to some of the basic concepts within um, trade. And one of the one of the well-known ones, and I don't want to throw too much jargon at people, but one of the, the very fundamental concepts in international trade is something called comparative advantage. So what is what does that mean? Johnny. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> comparative advantage is a concept that was developed and also used by David Ricardo in order to promote and provide rationale why free trade is a way to increase prosperity of nations. According to this simple principle, um, countries should specialize in commodities in which they have least opportunity cost of production. What is it? What does opportunity cost mean? Yeah, it means, um, <laughs> Primarily, they give up the least amount of uh, a value in alternate goods in order to produce the good on hand. In other words, they can make a computer giving up the least amount of resources. That could be used for something value. else. Yeah. And therefore, it is cheaper to produce because they give up the least amount of resources in producing it cost of making the product on hand is the least expensive way of manufacturing it or producing it. So according to him, then a country should specialize when they have relatively superior advantage of having the least opportunity cost of production in commodities and then leave the other countries to specialize in commodities where they have the same kind of advantage and exchange the goods and thereby both countries can voluntarily benefit as a result of taking advantage of the principle of comparative advantage. And thus you maximize global production. That's right. That's right. So just to make that a little more tangible, so um, obviously the U.S. does have uh, more readily accessible oil reserves, going back to oil, um, but the idea of having to squeeze oil out of out of rocks, um, that is obviously a very high cost of production, uh, whereas um, in Middle Eastern countries where they can just drill in and out comes the oil, they have a comparative advantage in Absolutely. oil production relative to um, some U.S. production. Well, yes, because another, another way of looking at this is we say comparative advantage, it's also comparative cost. So as you point to the Middle East, sure, you can get oil out of the ground at maybe $2 a barrel. Um, so we can look at it in, in terms of cost, it's really the best way to look at that. Uh, so the comparative advantage is what determines the least cost. Exactly. So if a country has the highest comparative advantage in those commodities, they would have the least cost of or ability of making the product using the least cost uh, combinations. So in other words, lower cost of production. So there is a, this link between comparative advantage and the cost. They're inverse. Highest, if you had the greater opportunity, uh, if you had the greater comparative advantage, that is also the commodity that has the least cost of production. So I, okay, just as an example that I that I use in class um, sometimes, because my students and the folks that were at the grocery store where I shop know that I am incredibly fond of mangoes, <laughs> and so. Um, <laughs> I do. I love mangoes. <laughs> I walked oh, in one wow. day and they said, oh, it's the mango lady. I was like, good Lord, apparently I ate too many. Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, it's bad when your grocery store identifies you as the mango lady. Anyway, um, mangoes are, are not produced in the United States. So all of the mangoes that I eat along with my coffee um, are imported. But we could grow mangoes in the U.S. We could grow mangoes in Indiana where we usually grow wheat and soybeans, but we don't because to grow mangoes, we would need greenhouses and basically to create a different climate 
<laughs> than we have in Indiana. Um, and that would be incredibly expensive. Um, it is much, much, much more cost efficient to grow mangoes in places where the climate and soil and all that are best for growing mangoes. And instead, growing wheat and soybeans in Indiana, where we're very good for that, corn as well. And, and the places where they're growing mangoes, they're not growing wheat or soybeans. Um, so like some of it is that kind of stuff. Like we could grow mangoes or pineapples or whatever in Indiana, but the cost would be really excessive. And so it just doesn't make sense because we do not have a comparative advantage in mangoes and pineapples in Indiana. We have a comparative advantage in soybeans and wheat. Well, in that case, and to follow up on what Johnny said, no, on that case, if we were to produce mangoes in Indiana, that would take resources away from other opportunities, meaning that, and that's a reference to opportunity costs that, that, that Johnny was talking about. Sure. I don't think we grow wheat in Indiana. Sorry, my Western roots just corn. came out. Corn. Corn. Corn is what I mean. Where I'm from, we go wheat. <laughs> okay, there you go. I, th I think it's also worth worth noting that, as uh, as Johnny emphasized, these these are relative costs. So it may be that the United States has an absolute advantage in a whole list of productive possibilities, but we should specialize in the one where we have a relatively better uh, advantage. So it's, there's sometimes this confusion between comparative advantage and absolute Absolutely. advantage and where we should specialize is comparative of course so. yeah so thinking about my clothing again um which comes from again china and uh sri lanka and haiti and nicaragua and thailand um and not the u.s none of my clothing is made in the u.s the u.s used to have a garment industry but that that all got exported um, because we don't have a comparative advantage um, in making clothing, right? Yes. Well, in other words, comparative advantage can change over time, correct? That, that's exactly the story behind that. So in this case, what has happened is as countries um, advance over time and the productivity of workers increase, the wages have to be compensated to match the productivity. And hence, the average worker in the garment industry in the United States who works with a lot of uh, capital machinery is a lot more productive than the average worker in uh, the countries that you have mentioned, right from Sri Lanka to Nicaragua, because they do not work with as much capital, which is uh, a scarcity in those countries. So if that country opens capital up, being, being capital meaning the machinery that is required to produce with a combination right. of joint inputs, labor and land and raw materials. So in the case of the countries that opens up for trade, all of a sudden the influx of capital that we moved from the United States, which what businessmen would do, combining with lower cost of labor, brings up the productivity of workers in those countries as well. And therefore, he or she is able to make the same product that used to be made in the U.S. using U.S. labor, which are paid significantly higher wages. Now they can produce the same commodity at a fraction of a cost. And that's where the shift in the competitive advantage takes place over time because of relative abundance of labor in those countries, which is intensively used in production of these commodities, dramatically drives down the cost per unit of production and hence greater gains, greater margins, greater reward for investors, and therefore businessmen naturally lean towards those paths. So my, my t-shirt from Haiti, um, which might uh, co would cost dramatically more if it were made in the U.S. where a garment worker, uh, you know, using machinery, but nevertheless, um, the labor costs on that uh, would be, you know, much higher so that my t-shirt would be much higher. 
um, in cost than in Haiti, where, you know, even if a company has to bring in all the machinery, the, the labor costs are dramatically lower, maybe, you know, a couple of dollars a day rather than $20 an hour. So the... Yeah, and as you were pointing, Gene, as you were pointing out, there's a benefit to our consumers, right? It's not just the looking at the business side of things, but we have a consumer benefit because we enjoy uh, cheaper, cheaper clothes of, of good quality. Now, keep in mind, though, that the garment workers who used to produce these goods in the United States are going to be out of jobs. Right. Uh, they, they will be displaced. And there will be a few of them relative to the large number of consumers who benefit from, from the cheaper garments to be purchased and from the businessmen who make better profits. So that's important too. Yeah, the job displacement is is an important thing, um, especially, you know, we're looking um, very hard at jobs these days with so many uh, people so dramatically being uh, becoming unemployed in the context of the pandemic. Um, I'm looking at the at the list of, of Indiana's top export items, actually, and we have um, you know things that are that take a lot more sophistication to produce than you know my t-shirt or my or my pants. Um, miscellaneous medications, motor vehicle transmissions, small gas-powered trucks, aircraft parts, including engines. Immunological goods for retail sales, happy to hear immunology stuff, uh, <laughs> large automobiles, uh, I know, <laughs> diesel engines, artificial joints, uh, which is, is interesting, um, trailers and semi-trailers, uh, and uh, composite diagnostic slash laboratory reagents. So we have quite Whoa. a few. Um, I know this is all good stuff. Actually. That's where the reagents are. <laughs> In terms of the time of the pandemic, uh, Indiana actually this, some of this looks really good. Um, but we've got we've got vehicular parts, we've got aircraft parts, we have um, pharmaceutically related things, um, and those are very very different than you know t-shirts and jeans. Um, and so we can see, you know, the difference in the education and skill levels of labor workers that it takes to produce those items, um, in Indiana versus other places where again, labor is cheap, but they are do. but part of the reason it's, it's less expensive is that, you know, they're producing things that take lower skills, less, less knowledge to produce. Is, is, is that right? That's right. Uh, these are specialized commodities. They are producing not competitive markets, but imperfect markets. And in some cases, the level of investment required is significantly higher. And therefore, in order for these industries to be successful, then just meeting the domestic demand alone is not going to cut it because the enormous fixed costs requires substantial size of the market. And fixed means, costs are what? Sorry to interrupt again. Pardon me? Fix, sorry to interrupt again. Fix, fixed costs. Cost. Fixed costs. Fixed costs means even before producing the first event, just to set up the factory in preparation to producing it, the amount of investment you have to make is significant. For example, a power company. A power company, if they, if they want to produce a first unit of electricity, megawatt of electricity, they have to have the full-fledged power plant to be in commission to produce it. And that takes billions of dollars of investment. However, once you set it up, it has a capacity to produce 250, mega, uh, let's say, megawatts of electricity per day. So then the more they produce, the cost per unit of production of the kilowatt or megawatt of electricity is lower. So that's what we talk about as fixed causes even when they're not producing anything, there is an incurrence of cost to be in business. And that's what fixed cost is. That's something you cannot eliminate by- Yeah, to bring that down a little more into like, you know, average person's sure. level. So let's say I'm gonna make brownies. Right. 
who doesn't love some brownies? Oh, yeah. So I know, exactly, right? <laughs> so if I've never made brownies before, um, I'm going to need the basic ingredients like the eggs, the flour, the chocolate, the sugar, um, you know, that stuff. But if I've never made brownies before, I'm also going to have to go buy the pans. I'm going to have to buy a mixing bowl. I'm going to have to buy, you know, a rubber scraper, a rubber spatula, maybe a wire whisk kind of stuff. So I have to, and you know, I have to go buy all that stuff before I can even think about making my brownies. So I have an upfront investment of, again, the pans, the bowls, all that stuff before I've made my first brownie. That's right. So that first pan of brownies, like the cost of that is much, much higher than my 50th pans of brownie or pan of brownies on, you know, the 50th day of lockdown, joking. <laughs> pan of brownies yeah. today, not really. <laughs> but, but really, if that first pan of brownies costs much, much more than my 50th or 75th or whatever, because I'm going to reuse the bowls, I'm going to reuse the, the whisk, I'm going to reuse the pans. I'll have to buy more eggs and flour and chocolate and sugar, but some of those upfront costs are are fixed and stable and reusable. Um, and f- from that, we get something called economies of scale, right? That's right. That is assuming the cost per unit of producing added brownies continues to decline, which in this case, that is bound to happen because every time you make a new pan of brownie, you're not going to buy all of this basic um, uh, requirement items that you listed right from the bowl, the flour, flour you might, but the bowl, the whisk, and then the spatula and other things you're not going to buy. So that is spread over the numerous uh, batches that you make. And that also, um, you know, scaling that far, far out, um, that's also a benefit of global trade. Um, because going back to what Johnny was saying earlier, and I'll, and I mean, Ken, you can weigh in the, on this, you know, thinking about like the, the, in, the upfront investment for oil extraction, um, the, the more t-shirts that a company makes, the more, you know, oil produced, you spread that across more barrels, more t-shirts, it's much, much, much more efficient cost-wise and production-wise to to produce a million t-shirts versus the first 100. That's right. One way of looking at this too is that when you look at your brownie example or for oil, your average cost is going to be spread over all of the all of the 50 days but your last cost the marginal cost is going to be very low so that's to say your marginal cost in that case lower much lower than your average cost and you can really get to economies of scale so that's that's uh, when you make these decisions about investments you look at what is your average cost you got to pay pay off your 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 bankers that you borrowed the money from but then once you're there do you, how high is your the cost of your last brownies there before you have to uh, go out of business? So, now, interestingly, when you talk about these economies of scale, when you're just producing to meet the domestic demand, the market may not be large enough to reduce the price. Right. However, once you expand uh, to meet the demands of rest of the world, then it provides you the scale. It provides the opportunity to increase output and thereby push the cost down even further. Instead of making 50 batches of brownie, now you're making 500,000 batches of brownies using the same initial investment, let's say, hypothetically. Exactly. Not really. And what you might have to buy a few more pants. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and that kind of, that kind of, as you expand into the global market to reduce your economy, take advantage of economies of scale, you run into political barriers, such as tariffs. Uh, perhaps maybe just a brief, what are tariffs? Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to wait on here. take a break here. And, and yeah, that'll be our teaser. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> will want to come back and, and learn about tariffs because they're in the news a lot and they're, they're an important feature of global trade today. So um, the International Power Hour um, and the IU Southeast Global Civic Literacy Initiative will be right back to talk tariffs. 
Welcome back to the International Power Hour, a special episode um, offered in conjunction with the uh, IU Southeast Global Civic Literacy Initiative, which is supported by the American Democracy Project and the Council on Foreign Relations. Cliff and I are joined this morning with much, much appreciation, um, uh, joined by Mr. Ken Stammerman and Dr. Johnny Alsi. We are talking trade. Um, Cliff wanted to uh, talk about tariffs, which have been in the news a lot. So what, and they were mentioned very briefly earlier, but what is a tariff and what is, what is the effect of tariffs? Well, uh, a, tar a tariff is a charge uh, levied on imports into a country. So that, and it might be, it might be levied by a federal government, a customs authority, for reasons of revenue, it's possibility, are more likely uh, to protect a certain producer in that country, to protect it from competition by um, a foreign producer. That's, that's kind of a very basic definition. But early on, tariffs were used because the revenue could be easily collected. You go down to the dock, and you, before they get the stuff off the ship, you collect the tax on it, as opposed exactly. to collecting an income tax, which requires some sophistication. Does that make sense? Uh, not only that, it was the primary route that was used in the U.S. prior to having personal income tax as a source of revenue for government to pay for the expenses. So therefore, primarily at that time when they imposed tariff, it was to collect revenues to run the government operations. However, there is the, as Ken mentioned, the other side of tariff is also the protective nature of tariff. So the countries have to decide which one they want to choose, which means protection can come with high rates of tariff. When you increase the tariff rate, it gives greater protection, but it may not be a source of revenue at that time because people are going to be avoiding consuming the commodity. Revenue may not be incoming, but if it's primarily for revenue, then it may not serve the other uh, objective, which is to protect as much, because in order to generate revenue, keep it low so that more goods could be sold. But then it doesn't provide the protection needed for an industry. So countries have to decide. So in general, what are the disadvantages of countries applying tariffs on goods coming into the country? How would you answer someone who asks that question? Ken. Well, well, for one thing, uh, remember we talked about the benefits to the consumer of being in a global marketplace. So we get high quality goods at a low price where we have freer trade. Once you put tariffs, then you encourage, you discourage the lower cost producer from selling to you. Uh, your quality goes down because you're forced to produce those goods at home. Uh, and that will be, as we talked earlier about comparative cost, comparative advantage, this will be a loss to the economy. And the economists come up with a term called the deadweight loss of tariffs, mm -hmm. which applies in this case. And by deadweight loss, it means a permanent loss to society in the form of uh, efficiencies given up. One, on the production side, the firms that are protected by tariff wouldn't have survived in the absence of it, which means they are using resources which otherwise wouldn't have been used. The only reason they're able to do it is because of the protection that is given to them. And those resources could have been used in other industries where it could have added more value and increase against the society. You sacrifice that. So that is one loss, which means inefficient producers are in business as a result of this tariff cover. The second one is, the permanent consumption loss, what consumers lose for good. Higher price means, as Ken alluded to earlier, by law of demand, higher price means you're moving along a demand curve, you buy less. And therefore, this higher price rations some people and kicks them out of market for good. They would have consumed the commodity at a lower price and afforded it, and they would be active participants in the market had the tariff not been there. So in the praise of tariff, by jacking a price, you're denying them the opportunity to consume. So that's a foregone consumption benefit for good in the economy. That's what 
The combination of the two is what economists call as a permanent loss of efficiency to the society labeled under dead weight loss. So if there's a tariff um, imposed on my morning coffee, for example, and the price of a cup of coffee suddenly costs $10 due to the tariffs, um, that's a lot of money for my, you know, $2 coffee that I cannot spend on something else. That's the price of, say, lunch somewhere else that didn't get spent um, because of this high price tariff raising my morning Joe from, you know, $2 to $10, which is, would be obviously a massive tariff, but just to illustrate the point. And that's, yeah. that's absolutely true. The inefficiency is what has led globally a movement um, of systematically negotiating among nations the trade possibilities of eliminating them and the creation of GATT, General Agreement to Tariffs on Trade, which evolved exactly. into WTO, World Trade Organization, is an effort on a coordinated, committed, and also in close partnership with countries to avoid any of these inefficiencies artificially created by policymakers in order to foster global benefits and advantages and efficiencies and also help consumers and producers in the interim. That's the intent of that, all these trade negotiations as well as regional blocks that were formed in the case of USMCA, which was nothing but NAFTA renamed between US to its two neighbors, North of it is Canada and South of it is Mexico. And similarly, EU, which is uh, 18 plus countries and several of them are on the sidelines wanting to join. Um, they also created one European large market. And one of the critical component of that, in addition to creating a common currency to eliminate all these inefficiencies is elimination of all the barriers that prior to it prevented people from seamlessly moving within the continent, selling goods, moving resources where it was highest reward, had the greatest reward. All of that were blocked. But now with all these elimination of barriers, now resources could flow in the places where it is put to greatest use and the greatest benefit. And that's the idea of it, is tariff typically creates inefficiency, it's anti-consumer, and it only protects those industries that are highly inefficient. And it is more imposed by political lobbying, political pressure, political objective, more than looking at the overall benefits that is given up, which is ultimately the average consumer. So it is anti-consumer in that sense. So getting rid of the tariffs um, is obviously good for me because I can get my coffee and my, my lunch it's good for, <clears throat> excuse me, good for the coffee seller because at $2 per cup, they will sell more than at $10 per cup. It's good for the place where I buy my sandwich because if I've had to have my coffee at $10 a cup and I can't buy my sandwich, then they lose. What about the jobs picture in this? Because we do hear about tariffs as protecting jobs. Um, I mean, there's implications in jobs for my coffee and my sandwich. Um, so and in fact, this is the primary argument here from labor unions that tariffs protect jobs. So perhaps some discussion of that, that relationship. Yes, it protects jobs in the industry where tariff is imposed to protect them. So which means that industry or that firm which benefits from the higher tariff gets a protection. However, what people miss out is on what are the secondary effects of a tariff, which is, for example, what if your trading partner retaliates and they come with a counter tariff on their end in order to offset what US, assuming US is a country that has imposed a tariff in the first place. So which is quite common. Yeah. It's called beggar thy neighbor policies. That, that's right. So not only, that is one aspect of it. If they retaliate, American exports are going to be diminished to those countries. And therefore, the export sector is going to suffer. And there's going to be displacement of workers in the export sector. And at the same time, the other thing that happens is 
what about all the industries that might be using the raw materials on which a tariff is imposed? Now, exactly. all of them have to pay higher for the raw material acquisition that is used in the production of the goods and services they make, which means they have to jack up price. There could be displacement of workers in those sectors because of loss of sales as a result of it. So overall, what you gain in one sector by protecting tariff, you might lose on collectively on a bigger scale on all other sectors that are going to be adversely impacted by tariff and also lost sales that, uh, that result from it. So overall, studies are not very clear about whether tariff overall is beneficial for protecting jobs. In fact, protection comes at a steep price that those jobs can be protected at a significant higher price of losses that are foregone by the consumers that is not accounted for. So in that sense, that protection is not meaningful. So to, to kind of connect that to our, our uh, local contexts here, um, we know that President Trump put uh, high tariffs on um, steel and aluminum. And we know that Indiana makes uh, motor vehicle transmissions, trucks, aircraft parts, large automobiles, diesel engines, uh, trailers and semi-trailers. I am not an expert in producing any of those things, but I think those use steel and aluminum. Mm. So what, are the, what is going to be the effects of, right. of um, Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminum, which will protect our steel and aluminum producers? What's going to be the effect on these Indiana producers? Ken? Well, those Indiana producers will have to pay higher prices for their inputs. Uh, that's one one issue right there. So, coming whereas a a steel producer up near Pittsburgh might benefit from the tariffs, uh, Cummins Diesel, which uses steel in their production, uh, will not benefit. Uh, furthermore, uh, in Kentucky, we're talking about building a big aluminum rolling plant, which will certainly benefit from not having to compete with aluminum imports. So, uh, you know, there are winners and losers, but you know, what Johnny was pointing out, the losses overall uh, will outweigh the gains. The gains will go primarily to a few producers, a few protected areas, and uh, the losses affect us all. So one way of looking at it. I, I would like to add in there though that but Johnny mentioned, you know, the general agreement on tariff and trades. Yes. What we saw in the post-war era, all the way up to this administration, is that enlightened leaders saw the benefits of trade to the country, and over the years uh, went through a series of negotiations to lower tariffs worldwide. Now, I was working in the State Department the Economic Bureau when what we had we had what was called the Geneva Round. That was one of the first great reductions in tariffs worldwide. Uh, we brought the Europeans on board uh, at Geneva, and it was one of the great achievements of, of uh, freer trade, I think, of trade policy in the post-war world. In fact, GATT really facilitated that because when you became a member of GATT, you became a most favored nation, which meant if two countries negotiated reductions in tariff, you automatically benefited from that with even without having to be part of the negotiations because you were a most favored nation. Oh, exactly. And in those days, remember, we had two kinds of economies worldwide. We had the centrally planned economies and we had the Western economies. So it was mostly the Western economies which were in GATT. And once the centrally planned economies well, the Soviet system collapsed. Uh, they then eventually had to move into the globalized system. Yeah. So, um, so the tariffs. We, I mean, we reduced tariffs obviously through GATT, through the World Trade Organization, um, because as we talked about, like there, there are some winners, like the Kentucky aluminum plant <laughs> will will benefit. But, um, you know, Cummins Engines and all those other companies that are producing anything that uses steel or aluminum, they're suffering. Um, but to, to sort of bring it local and to connect back to what, um, what y'all said, <clears throat> excuse me, with the retaliatory tariffs, um, what we also have seen in the last few years affecting our Indiana economy um, is retaliatory tariffs 
placed on a lot of agricultural products, especially like soybeans. Soybeans. Um, Because the producers of aluminum and steel out there who are now being, um, you know, not entirely blocked from the U.S. market, but demand is down because their prices are up because of the tariffs, their governments have said, well, if you're going to play that game, to contango. And so we're going to produce tariffs on things that other countries buy from the U.S. And, um, you know, Cliff, I know you've had the statistics at hand and you're, um, you know, pulled out uh, from your head. I don't know if you know I'm off the top of your head now because I forget stuff. But, uh, you know, Indiana soy soybean producers really suffered with an inability to sell their soybeans on the global market. Um, in you fact, know, they were bailed out by the government. Yeah, bec- yeah, and that's due to the tariffs and the retaliatory tariffs that um, that that were put in place. So, you know, messing with one thing can really have ripple effects that um, can cause a lot more. And his- historically, if you look at what happened prior to the Great Depression, the last huge great tariff we this country placed was the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which caused other countries to retaliate. You had a series of retaliations, and ultimately global trade came to a stop and made the Great Depression even greater. True. And interestingly, since you brought the point of uh, farmers who are hurting, and they're hurting big time, yeah. and what they want is trade. They don't want handouts. Now, we have already given one financial aid package that runs into 12 to $18 billion, the first round. And now, since COVID, the situation has gotten even worse. And therefore, the Congress is planning to pass another $9 billion package to aid the farmers. So they are saying, this is not what we need. What we need is trade. Open up and eliminate the barriers. Come up to some consensus and agreement with China and the rest of the world so that we can continue to do business as usual as we have done in the past. Now, to give some uh, uh, other local businesses that have benefited from global trade, uh, in our own backyard, we have Beach Mold um, and Tool Incorporated. And they are into injection molding and plastic molding, making parts for automobile industry, medical, and uh, other businesses that need customized. That's what they do. And they have em- employment to a tune of uh, 900 people. If you look at Santec, they have worldwide operations, plants located all over uh, all over the world in every continent. Also and they, very local. And they are they are in the background privately owned, and they their headcount, the number of workers they have on their plants worldwide is forty two hundred. In a backyard, they have nineteen hundred people. Guess what? About sixteen or seventeen percent of these employees are IUS students, former graduates and who are currently enrolled in IU. So therefore, there is a direct benefit to our institution, local community, local economy, when trade flourishes, when they can kind of garner a bigger share of market overseas, which means that is beneficial to local economy here. Similarly, if you look across the river, we have UPS. UPS hires 21,000 people. It's one of the largest logistics company. And the only business they are in is moving goods and services around the world. And that's their expertise. And they hire a large number of people in a local area. So is Ford. They employ about 12,000. Yeah, they have two plants in uh, Louisville, employing 12,600 people. And that's a gainful employment, greater levels of uh, income earned in these manufacturing jobs and their contribution to local economy in the form of taxes and uh, other benefits. And also Ford being uh, uh, socially responsible uh, corporation actively engage in uh, voluntary and other investment activities in the local community. And the list goes on. You have GE hiring 6,000 people. You have Brown and Foreman, 1,300 people. You have Young Brand generating about $5.8 billion worth of goods and services. And Brown and Foreman bringing in $3.25 billion uh, to their overall uh, revenue generation in the last year. So is Papa John's, $1.78 billion in total revenue. So all this money means it is a benefit to the local community. So trade wins at the end of the day. Anything that limits it, yes, it imposes a huge drain on resources, creates inefficiency, 
and also deters opportunity for people to fully utilize their potentials. You know, yeah, I could... Leslie gave me the, the signal a minute ago that we were at our hour. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly, Johnny, I, I feel like that that list of of you know employment and income benefits to the local community, you know, again, some of them literally in the backyard of our campus, um, but also um, you know somewhat more broadly to our um, you know Kentuckyana region. I, I feel like that's sort of a of a mic drop moment. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I think we will we will end there. Um, Johnny and Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Um, yes, thank you. Our pleasure. Yes. Good. Nice seeing you again, Ken. It's first time seeing you. Wonderful. Leslie, thank you very much for you being there. You are the... He is our producer. The moral support yes. there, and we appreciate that. And of course, Gene... Thanks for this opportunity. Oh, thank you. So um, Johnny, again, is a um, professor in the Department of Economics. And um, Mr. Sammerman will be teaching international political economy in the fall semester um, for our political As science. I retire. As I retire. As I've got another two weeks to not think about that. <laughs> so, um, so you can find both of, of these fine guests um, in the classroom, hopefully soon, um, on our Thank campus. Thanks to you both. Thank you. And to Leslie. Our Thank you. Without him, the power hour. Hey, good to meet you, Johnny. Pleasure. Thank you.